Good morning. My name is R. Dallas Green. Welcome to Grace. I'm glad you're here. Welcome. Uh, this morning, I'd like to address one of the hot topics of our time, the issue of gay rights and the LGBT movement. Uh, it's a talk of everywhere. And uh, this sermon's been brewing inside of me for a little while. And I came back, and there was a note on my desk saying, would you please address this topic? And I felt this compulsion to go here. Uh, we're going to take a break from Nehemiah. Next week, we'll wrap up with the um, kids coming back from Momentum and a report, and Pastor Eric will be sharing. But all of us need to be equipped and prepared to give an answer for the hope that lies within us. So our church is all about discipleship. You know, we're, we're followers of Jesus, and we want to learn to love and live like Jesus. So my opening questions are like this. God, what is your heart on this issue? How can we manifest love and truth to our own generation? God, what do you want to say to us on this matter? If you're looking for structure, what I'm going to do is I'm going to address the culture, then I'm going to take you to Romans chapter 1 to see what God says about the matter, then we'll come over to 2 Timothy chapter 2 in terms of a Christian response, okay? So let me try to set this conversation in a context. About two weeks ago, the Supreme Court ruled that same-sex marriage is now legal in all of our 50 states, extending the 14th Amendment to same-sex couples, essentially guaranteeing um, gay marriage as a civil right. Now, many are saying that the Supreme Court has gone way beyond its boundaries, and many are saying as well that we want to be on the right side of history. But I can honestly tell you that being on the right side of history is not my primary concern. My primary concern is to be in agreement with God. So, um, in regards to this issue, at the outset, I want to say that I am not primarily concerned about what the Supreme Court has said. My primary concern is not what the, the uh, judges have said. My primary concern is not what the president has said. My primary concern is not what the activists are saying. My primary concern is not about what the bloggers are writing, though I've read a lot of blogs on this. What my primary concern is, is what God has to say about this issue. I believe in the gospel. I believe that God has made us. He is our creator. I believe that God has authority, that God has given us a word on this topic, and he wants us to take a perspective. And I think you'll find this morning that the scriptures are very, very, very clear on this topic. People have celebrated the decision of the Supreme Court um, by putting rainbows on their Facebook accounts, lighting up the White House with rainbow colors. It strikes me as interesting that after the flood, a sign was given the rainbow, right? That the earth would no longer be destroyed by water. God gave us a sign, namely the rainbow. And also, when you read Revelation 4, you see that there's a rainbow encircling the very throne of God. So when we think about rainbows, God's throne room, if you will, is encircled with a rainbow. People celebrated the decision, as well as some people grieved the decision. And I honestly believe that the heart of God is grieved. God's heart is grieved, but God is not surprised. And I, what I hear is that America is in great spiritual de decline. 
Many people are afraid that pastors and churches will be arrested for hate crimes. Many are afraid that our religious freedoms will be uh, diminished. Many are afraid that Christian institutions will be required to hire gays and lesbians. So the issue is something like a lightning rod, okay? Putting people who have rainbows on their Facebook accounts pitted against those with convictions against homosexuality. So in America, you have the haters and you have the lovers. You have the intolerant and you have the tolerant. Uh, I think the meta-narrative of our culture is that either you are an affirmer, you affirm gay rights, or you alienate gay people. I think Jesus offers us a third alternative, which we'll come to. So, one Canadian pastor comments I found very helpful. He said, Canada has had same-sex marriage for about a decade. And he wrote that the church has always been countercultural. Do you agree with that? The church always lives as an alternative to those with alternative lifestyles, if you will. We're living in a season of American life, a season in history when our culture is moving from a Christian culture where Christian values were deeply embedded in the culture, increasingly into what is called a post-Christian culture. That is to say that there was a time, like our founding fathers, when Christian values were embedded in our culture. That's why it says says that we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with inalienable rights to life and liberty, the pursuit of happiness. Now, our founding fathers understood the pursuit of happiness to be the will of God, that when we pursue the will of God and align ourselves with God, we find internal happiness. And it's hard to pinpoint exactly when this shift began to occur. Perhaps starting in our schools, and many students here were raised in schools where homosexuality was taught as an alternative lifestyle, that we need to learn to tolerate one another. And then venturing into the media, portraying the gays in shows like Glee as being bullied, needing our protection. Then spilling over into our states, We see Maryland being one of the states that adopted same-sex marriage a few years back, and now the Supreme Court basically guaranteeing this right to all Americans, the right to marry. Viewpoints of a Christian perspective that were held by our culture no longer exist. For at some, it seems as if we are making great progress. It seems as if we are moving ahead. But for others, it seems as if we are eroding, that we have lost our moral compass, that we're looking for direction, and we are directionless. Christianity has always been countercultural. It's interesting, the culture will uh, demand of us tolerance, but if you disagree, suddenly you became intolerant. So now let me take you into what I believe our culture is teaching, part one of the sermon. Ready for our first slide? Let's do it. Our current culture is teaching uh, lesbian, gay, bisexual, 
transgender and questionable, LGBTQ, that sexual orientation is innate. That is to say that I was born this way, that I can't help myself. I didn't choose when I was in seventh grade to become a lesbian. I didn't choose in high school to become gay. I basically was born gay. And since I was born gay, it's something that I cannot change. A person cannot change their orientation. That is to say, if I am oriented toward the same sex, that can never change. Now, to me, a little aside, that is a denial of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God unto salvation for all those who believe. Now, some will experience in the gospel a sudden shift in their orientation. Some will struggle with this their entire lives. You see, the God who delivers us has the power to save, but he also has the power to provide sustaining grace so that even though I struggle with same-sex desire, I can now live my life to the glory of God, that God is glorified through my life. Third, this orientation must be expressed. In other words, if I am lesbian, then I need to be in a lesbian relationship and express my sexuality. What's happened is, in America, we have elevated sexuality to the place where it now is our primary identity. Fourth, a valid expression, according to our culture, of one's sexuality is same-sex marriage. After all, don't they love each other? Isn't there basic equality in America between someone who is of opposite sex and someone who's of the same sex? Shouldn't they be guaranteed the same right pertaining to marriage? And the last, which I alluded to earlier, that basically anyone who disagrees with this cultural perspective is labeled a bigot or intolerant. What do you think about our culture? There you are. There's where we all sit in our culture. Now, I want to say that the alternative of the church, the alternative of the church is to love regardless. Regardless of your point of view, regardless of your orientation, regardless of your lifestyle, I promise I will love you. I will not always feel loved by you, but I will always love you. I may not always agree with you, but because God has loved me, and that love of God is inside my heart, I promise to love you. Well, I asked myself this question. How could the LGBT movement be gaining such momentum and ground in our country? I mentioned to you the fact that we are becoming increasingly post-Christian. But I want to make another observation. It is true that sinners act like sinners. Non-believers will act like non-believers. So why should we expect that non-believers should act like believers? Sinners do a good job of sinning, right? Non-believers act like non-believers. Why should we expect that non-believers would wait until marriage? Why should, we, why should non-believers not have same-sex relationships? Why should non-Christians be faithful for the days of their life? Why do Christians expect non-Christians to act like Christians? 
That's a good question, isn't it? And that's essentially part of the problem, is that Christians are expecting non-Christians to act like Christians. Now, I know our kids are away, right? And families have been divided over this LGBTQ question. And just when our kids need our support, many have been rejected and pushed away from their families, right? Jesus was a manifestation of God's grace and truth. Jesus was very attractive and drawn to sinners. Sinners were drawn to Jesus. But Jesus maintained his integrity, his conviction. It's interesting. The culture will tell you, one last point about culture, we'll go on. The culture will tell you that you're not ever to judge. You know, when you Google the question, what are Christians not to do? One of those things that comes up is, do not judge. You have no right to tell anybody what's wrong. Bill Mayer said, doesn't your Bible say, judge not? I just want to say that Jesus had no problem telling people they were wrong. He didn't. Because he said, just after judge not, he said, many people are on the broad road to destruction. If somebody was on a road to destruction, wouldn't you warn them that the path they're on is not a good path? You see, judgment is what you do after you tell somebody the truth. Judgment is casting that person off. Jesus said, with the measure you use, it'll be measured unto you. So first of all, take the log out of your own eye before you take the speck out of your brother's eye. So I'm going to tell you some truth. The truth is... There is no difference in God's eyes between heterosexual couples cohabitating together before marriage and heterosexual couples getting together and cohabitating. Do you follow? There is no difference in God's eyes between sin and sin. Sin is sin to God in God's eyes. And interestingly also, in terms of homosexuality, in the Bible, when homosexuality is mentioned, it's, it's mentioned beside hatred as both being sin. So a person who hates the homosexual is sinning equally to the homosexual who is sinning. All right, you with me so far? So I just want to clear the air about like God's perspective on sin. So because of the volatility and sensitivity to this topic, we need, don't we need, we need the Holy Spirit to guide us through this topic. It is some seriously muddy water. But for Debbie and I and our family, it's a personal issue because we have a nephew who has been openly living gay for some time now. His father happens to be a pastor. Now, the way they've handled this as a family is that the son and his partner are welcome in their home. Now, no make-out sessions allowed, um, you know, no public display of affection, and when we go to bed, we go to different bedrooms, but when we eat together, we fellowship, and we talk openly about our lives. And his thinking is that long before my son became gay, he was my son, and he will always be my son, and I will always stand with my son, my son will always be welcome in my house. We will welcome our son into our house because he is our son. 
dear friend of mine was struggling. He had a history of being homosexual, and God had delivered him. But he stepped back into some of his old patterns, and he came to my house, and he hadn't slept the night before. And I made him some tea, and we had together tea fellowship. Now, I want you to find what tea fellowship is. At the greenhouse, when we have tea fellowship, that means we can just linger with each other and talk about anything that's on our hearts. So I gave him something to eat. And over the next couple of hours, his furrowed brow began to relax, and his troubled soul began to calm down. And I said to my friend, I said, it looks like you haven't slept in a while. And he said, I haven't slept for a couple of days. I said, go upstairs and get yourself some sleep. What I tried to be to my friend was, I tried to be a friend to my friend, to give him an ear to listen to him, to encourage his soul, and to give him some rest. The bottom line, brothers and sisters, is about loving somebody, about being the arms and hands and feet of Jesus living in this world, of loving people. A couple days after Christmas, we were having a family gathering. Debbie asked if we could invite her brother and sister to the house. It was a time, you know, between Christmas and New Year's. So in the time gap between the invitation was made, her sister, whose name is Trish, her sister-in-law, Trish, she discovered that she had double booked. She had promised her sister, Trish's sister, to get together over the holidays. So Trish asked Debbie if she could bring her sister with her to the house and her partner over. They are lesbians. Now, this was not the first time I had met them. I had done family weddings and family gatherings. And I said, I would love to see them. This is what I discovered. I found them to be delightful people. They would say, I didn't choose to be a lesbian, but this is my orientation. I prefer the companionship, the conversation of a woman. They are Catholics, and they've been basically put out of their church, been rejected. And I just want to say to you that so many people in the LGBTQ movement have been rejected by their families and rejected by their churches. One of the conversation points I found very interesting was that in their 30 years of being together, they've chosen not to have children. They didn't feel it would be right to raise children in their lifestyle. But overall, this is my assessment. I found them as people delightful. They help with the kitchen chores. They help set the table. They help clean up when the food was served. They are deeply interested in me. And they supported each other through thick and thin. What I'm saying is, this is an enormously complex issue. And God's going to have to guide you through the relationships you find yourself in, whether it is in your family or outside of your family. So one of the questions that we're living in here is, what do I do if my 16-year-old son announces that he is gay? Or my 17-year-old daughter announces that she is a lesbian. The first thing I want to say to you is, breathe. This is not the end of the world. Jesus is still on the throne. The sun will still shine tomorrow. The birds will still chirp. 
It's not the end of the world, okay? You're living in a world where the culture is increasingly moving toward a post-Christian perspective. The second thing I would say to you is, begin the conversation. How long have you been thinking like this? When did you arrive at that conclusion? You want to engage on the issue. Third thing I'd say to you is that we as a church want to create a safe place where this conversation can happen. What you're going to need is become part of a youth group or a part of a small group where it's safe to talk about issues that we're wrestling with. So, we want to be a place where someone can process what they're struggling with. Second question is, what do I do if my 33-year-old daughter announces that she and her partner are getting married and would, and would like us to come to their wedding? Now you find yourself on the horns of a dilemma because you most likely have a belief that's wrong. But she is your daughter. Just like my brother-in-law said, she was your daughter before she announced she was lesbian. And she will always be your daughter. And your heart is aching for her because she's chosen a path. But the question I want you to grapple with is, what will coming say to her, but what will not coming say to that daughter? I think it's time. Don't you think it's time we look at the scriptures? Because I think they're going to give us some necessary counsel. Let's look together at Romans chapter 1. It says in Romans chapter 1, now we're to God's perspective on the issue. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. The assertion in Romans chapter 1 is that God is creator. That what is known about God is plain to us because God made it clean, made it plain. Since the creation, God's invisible qualities have been clearly seen. His eternal nature, his divine power. I was looking at the sun set over the mountain that's set behind my house. And I was just praising God for his goodness, his glory manifested in that sunset. You see, God made the sun, the moon, and the stars. God's fingerprints are all over creation. The heavens declare the glory of God. By his hand, all things were made. God is the designer. But at the apex of God's creation, of God being creator, in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, God made certain declarations about him being the creator. Declaration number one, God created gender differences. God said he made them male and female. In the image of God, he made them male and female. Man was made by God. God made the man with energy, with initiative, with a desire to protect, a desire to provide a strength. God made the female with an inner strength, with discernment and with wisdom and sensitivity. He made the woman to be nurturing. So God has made us with gender differences. Secondly, God created marriage. God instituted marriage. He said, for this cause, a man will leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife, and the two shall become one. So from God's perspective, he made the man 
and the woman. And his will is that the man and woman come together in a uh, committed, monogamous relationship. Thirdly, he told the couple to multiply, to reproduce. Now, speaking from a grandparent perspective, I so like this command of God that he blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply, because I seriously like my grandkids and would love to see many more of them come. He told the couple, he said, to reproduce. Now, the only way you're going to reproduce is in the context of a man and woman relationship, right? So this is the command of God. And all the narratives in Scripture will take us back to this narrative. And fourth, he made us to be intimate with one another. They were naked and unashamed. There were no secrets in the garden. There was no shame in the garden. God made them man. God made them woman. God ordained marriage. God commanded them to reproduce. And God said, intimacy is my gift. I give unto you. So, look at verse 21 again. Although although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor give thanks to him. What has happened in our culture is we are in serious rebellion against God. We are intentionally, purposefully rebelling against our Creator and His created order. God has created us man and woman. God has instituted marriage. God has called for reproduction. God has given us intimacy. But we have said, God, we do not like how you made things. We believe that we have a better way. We like to rebel against your created order. We have exchanged the praise of God for the pleasures of sin. We have traded the truth of God for a lie. And we have plunged ourselves into the depths of depravity. The scripture here says that we claim to be wise and we became foolish. If you read through the bloggers, this was what one blogger said. We believe that the Bible says that Sodom and Gomorrah wasn't destroyed because of homosexuality. We believe it was destroyed because of the lack of hospitality. Let me try that again. We believe that Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed not because of homosexuality, but because of a lack of hospitality. Now let me try to refresh to you the story. Some angelic visitors come to the house of Lot. And they're inside and Lot's about to serve them up some dinner. Suddenly there's a knock at the door. And men outside are demanding his visitors to come out for sexual relations. And so Lot asks the question to the men outside, Why do you do this wicked thing? And then God destroyed their city. Jude says that the city was destroyed because of immorality. We claim to be wise, but we really have sunk into foolishness. To be foolish is to believe that there really is not a God. Many will say, if God only knew about sexual orientation when the Bible was written, if God only knew. We're so much more enlightened now. We know so much more than when the biblical writers write. We actually have, you know, advancement in our knowledge. Now, one of my favorite people to read 
is a guy named Henry Nowen. He was a professor at Harvard and Yale. And he went to St. Petersburg, and there at the Hermitage, he stared at the prodigal son. And he had a transformational experience, actually, there. And when he came back from his trip to St. Petersburg, he, he retired from Harvard University, and he went up to Toronto to work at the La Arch, to work with the physically and mentally impaired. And this is what he said in one of his last books, that though my entire life I struggled with same-sex attraction, I chose to be celibate to honor Jesus Christ, whom I serve. Here was a man who struggled his entire life with sexual orientation, but chose not to practice because he knew to practice would be a violation of the scripture we're talking about. What's happened in our culture is we think we're so wise, but we've become foolish. People are saying, I was born gay, I can't change. Churches are ordaining homosexuals. The revisionists are saying, God never knew about orientation. Bloggers are saying words like this. Scriptural texts condemning the practice of homosexuality are neither inspired of God nor enduring forever. One professor at American University said, not to challenge, condemn, criticize Paul's use of homosexuality is to oppress. Christians should demand the removal of statements about homosexuality from the Bible. In other words, if you don't like what it says, just rip it out of your Bible. Now, here's the one that sort of takes the cake. This is Professor Johnson of Emory University. He says this word. It's a concession. The Bible nowhere speaks neutrally about same-sex love. But that means that the Bible is wrong. We reject the commands of Scripture. We appeal to a greater authority the weight of our own experience. In other words, what he's saying is, we no longer believe that God is in charge, that God is the authority. We no longer trust God and His authority. We trust ourselves. We don't want to be ruled by God. We want to be independent of God. We want to set our own course. We want to do our own thing. The Bible is irrelevant. The Bible is outdated. The Bible is inapplicable. We throw the Bible out. I want to say that there is a serious distortion in our minds, you see. Our minds have become darkened to the truth. We think we're wise, and we've become entirely foolish. Notice what it says in chapter 1, verse 24 of Romans. God gave them over. Now, those are chilling, frightening words. God gave them over. God said, if you want to break free from my authority, if you want to do whatever you want to do, if you want to be whatever you want to be, if you want to choose your own course, God gave them over. What did he give them over to? To sinful desires of their hearts. You see, homosexuality or heterosexuality, immorality, both flow out of the heart. The heart that is not in alignment with God's heart. You see, it comes not out of nowhere. Sexual desire comes out of a sinful heart. He gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts, to sexual impurity, for the degrading of their bodies with one another. 
He's talking here about heterosexual and homosexual sin. He calls this the degrading of our bodies. You see, God has made us for one another to be expressed in the context of marriage. And anything less than that is a degrading of our bodies. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator. Look at verse 26. Because of this, here it is again, the chilling words, God gave them over to what? To shameful lusts for even the women. Now, I want to just pause a moment. Even the women. You see, the women were the paradigm of virtue. You look at the women, they were the last to fall, but even the women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. Lesbianism is an unnatural relationship. In the same way, how about the guys? Verse 27. In the same way the men abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Well, is God clear on this issue? Does this sound like America? The very same culture Paul was writing in, he's writing this letter from Corinth, had degraded to the place where homosexual and heterosexual immorality were rampant. It was spoken of to be a Corinthian, to Corinthianize, was to be sexually immoral. And he was actually calling people out of his culture for a departure from um, God's standard. The question you may be asking is, Pastor R., how do we respond to this? Okay, I get it, all right? I can I, I understand what God is saying, but what do I do with all this stuff? I'm glad you're asking that question. Okay, 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 24. 2 Timothy 2 and verse 24. Now I'm going to speak directly to you, okay? And the Lord's servant, I'm calling you the Lord's servant. God has appointed you to be in your generation, to be a voice speaking to your generation. You see, a disciple of Jesus Christ is someone who loves Jesus, someone who follows Jesus, someone who obeys Jesus, someone who serves Jesus, and you are the Lord's servant. Now, I'm speaking directly to you, and the Lord's servant must not quarrel, not be quarrelsome, not be argumentative, not to pitch yourself against people so as to try to win an argument. You know, you can try to win the argument and alienate somebody even further, push them away even further by being argumentative. I'm saying to you, do not try to pick a fight. Do not try to find someone with an alternate lifestyle and say to them, you're living in an alternate lifestyle. The Lord's servant must not quarrel. Instead, he must be kind to everyone. He's saying that the mark of the Christian's life is a genuine kindness. So my question to you is, will we, as the body of Jesus Christ, open our arms to the LGBT community and say, you are welcome here. We are glad that you have come because we love you. You see, if every time I have a conversation with somebody 
and the conversation is about their sexual orientation. Don't you think they would sort of tire of that conversation? Like, for instance, you're talking to me. You say, Pastor R., how's your sexual orientation doing? It's just, like, awkward, right? Like, so, so what I'm saying is, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, not argumentative, not trying to pick a fight, not trying to di- divide, not trying to accentuate the polarity that's in our culture. But must be kind to everyone, able to teach. The day when Christianity could be a subculture within our culture, where we could raise our kids on veggie tales, and then to come to youth group and sort of be out of the culture, that day is over. That day has died. That we are not living in that time anymore. The culture has shifted all around us, you see. The Supreme Court decision is just a marker in our history. But the culture has been shifting for a long, long time. The time is now here for us to stand up. The time is now here for us to speak up. The time is now here for us to live out our faith. For us to be light in the midst of the darkness. For us to be salt in the midst of the decaying culture. For us to be an ambassador of God sent to show love to people. The Lord's servant must not quarrel. Instead must be kind to everyone no matter what side they stand on. Able to teach and not resentful. This is what I see. I see Christians being much more angry about this issue than compassionate. There is resentment in the heart of many people I talk to. We become bitter inside. And that bitterness will push people away. You see, no one is going to line up at your door waiting for you to judge them. Nobody. Do you like to be judged? So the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, must not be bitter and resentful, must be kind to people. Notice that those who oppose him, he may gently instruct in the hope that God would grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. We do not shoot the victims. And people are held captive. And they need to be set free. What I long for you is freedom. I want you to experience freedom and joy. And when you know the truth, the truth will set you free. So the Lord's servant gently instructs a person in the truth. They wait for the moment when someone asks them, what makes you who you are? And you can say, I am a follower of Jesus Christ. He gives me joy. I am his. Though the the day is over when Christians can be part of a subculture and sort of be oblivious to this issue, the day has dawned for us to become his body, influencing this world. You know, when Nehemiah prayed, we're going back to Nehemiah, Nehemiah prayed, Lord, I confess the sins of my house and the sins of my nation. And you study, you study the Bible's prayers. And you see, almost every one of them is a call to repentance. It's a call to repentance. God is calling his people to repent. 
from the attitudes we've been carrying to our alienation of the LGBT community to this demand to be affirming. You see, God's people are caught in the middle of this crossfire. God calls us, in verse 26, that they will come to their senses and escape the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. I'm going to pray now. I'm going to ask you to pray with me because it's a big topic. Father, here we are on a Sunday morning walking through what our culture teaches, what you are teaching us, and then how to respond. You want us to be loving. You want us to love the lesbian. God, you want us to extend grace with a very wide margin. You want us to understand that your sustaining grace helps a person through their struggles, that you're delivering God, but many struggle. God, we want to extend grace to the struggling wrestlers. And then, God, we want, with all of our heart, we really want to battle for people's freedom. We really want to be about battling for people and being for them and not against them. Father, we want to tell the truth. We want to tell the truth in all situations. To tell it without reservation, without hesitation, that here's the truth of what God has said. But then, God, we want people that have questions to be able to ask their questions without judgment, without condemnation. A person is working out their sexual identity. God, we want to be a safe church, a place where people can come and wrestle and find truth and find love, find grace. So God, we do open our arms. Even as you open your arms, we are your servants. God, help us to be kind and not quarrelsome. Help us, Lord, to not be oppositional. Help us, Lord, to manifest love and truth. Help us, Lord, to be about your rescue mission of seeing people delivered out of a destructive lifestyle. God, we pray in Jesus' name. Really good to declare the truth. And it's really good to pray. And your heart just may be burdened for somebody, and you need to just come and pray. You may be like, just Lord, I just need to confess. I need to get it off my chest. Like, I have had the wrong attitude. I've been carrying stuff inside of me that's just like not of you. It's hateful, it's resentful. And I just need to confess that. Or maybe it is that you just need the grace of God today. You just need God to extend some grace to you. Here's a place where you can come and pray, and we'll pray with you. Would you stand as we sing our last song?